Today's episode will be an interview about early American Black nationalism with Wilson Moses, who was professor of American history at Penn State before his retirement and is now enjoying his retirement. <laughs> Hi, Wilson. Hi. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about Black nationalism. So maybe you can start by saying something about this phrase. What do you understand by the phrase Black nationalism? Well, I should start by saying that I, I first became interested in this back in the 1960s. And at that time, black nationalism was associated with a series of figures who were always on television and who were, some of them were very, very militant, and some were even on the conservative end of the spectrum, but they were equally militant. In any case, most people thought of black nationalism as a contemporary uh, event and as a contemporary ideology. And they tended to think of it in terms of figures like Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown and Malcolm X. And so I thought, as I began to, to read up on it, I began to think, well, gee, this does have a history. It's been around for a long time. And it would be sort of as if we were to talk about American nationalism solely in terms of the Vietnam War rather than to think about it in terms of the Mexican War. So I thought, well, gee, why don't I try to do something to uh, correct this idea? And I was particularly interested in W.E.B. Du Bois. But uh, in the process, I became aware of Alexander Crummel as well. And he came to be uh, very much a symbolic figure, mainly, I suppose, because he was the one who most systematically developed it. And do you consider the whole idea here to be something like the notion of a nation? This is a phrase you sometimes hear in this context, a nation within a nation, so that black people or African-Americans constitute a separate nation unto themselves within the wider American nation? Is that really what we're talking about here? It could be, although Frederick Douglass famously said a nation within a nation is an anomaly. But I think, yes, that is one way we could talk about it, and that, that is the way that many people talked about it during the 1960s. I was more inclined to see it as a movement for an actual territorial separatism in my later work, although in the beginning I was more inclined to talk about black nationalism as a broad way of looking at things, as a kind of an emotional thing, and then Later, I began to think of it more in terms of its political defining. I tended to define it more strictly in my later work in terms of uh, the geopolitical aspects of actually seeking a nation state, usually to be located in Africa. But both of those ideas are present. And obviously, Liberia would be the kind of uh, main example of that in the 19th century. Liberia was the main example of that in the 19th century, although there was considerable flirtation with Haiti. And then, of course, uh, Sierra Leone, which was the British counterpart of Liberia. I visited both countries, and it was interesting to see the parallels and differences. In your search for the roots of this ideology, as you just called it, how far back do you go? So do you think of Crummel as like a pioneering figure in black nationalism, or do you see even Crummel as coming in after, say, a generation or two of development? Well, if we're going to think about nationalism 
as being a combination of the Greek idea of the polis and the uh, Jewish idea of the chosen people, then I think we could look at the chosen people idea as coming about a little bit earlier than Crummel. There were numerous Christian figures in the 18th century who entertained that idea, the idea of a special mission, a kind of a messianic mission of African-American people. And that was preserved, incidentally, all the way up into the 20th century by W.E.P. Du Bois and Martin Luther King, the idea of the messianic mission of African-American people. And this could be carried out either from various low-key, either, either in the United States or, or in other places, then, but the idea of an actual nation-state, that was more associated with people like Henry Harlan Garnett and Martin Delaney, although Du Bois, obviously, by migrating to Ghana, uh, gave much credence to this idea, and Crummel, by spending almost 20 years in Africa, did so as well. So there are different ideas, and it depends on which of these strains we want to pick up. If we're going to start attributing uh, the idea to earlier figures, and the earlier figures, I would say, were in the Christian church. Now, what's interesting about some of these earlier nationalists, sort of, uh, for, for example, I think it was Gustavo Sbasa, who was quite fascinated with parallels that he could see between the Jewish people and African people, and almost seemed to kind of suggest that there was a migration of Jewish ideas across the northern top of the continent and into West Africa. But that was not a dominant feeling. However, it is interesting to notice this in that one 18th century author. So that actually takes us way back to, uh, over many of the figures we've already covered, Delaney, Garnett, and so on. But um, you've actually written a book about Crummel quite a, quite a while ago, and so maybe we should focus on him. What kind of black nationalist is he? So I suppose an obvious thought would be that he is one of the few figures that we've covered in the podcast, at least, who, as you said, went to Africa and spent decades there. Does he represent for you the kind of turn within black nationalism where it does become a commitment to having a separate political entity outside the United States? Well... Yeah, I think he he does take that quite seriously. And what's interesting about it is that he's a kind of it's a kind of a, an elitist uh, Christian black nationalism. What's interesting to me is that the black nationalism that I studied uh, led me to notice one thing: that there were numerous fiscal missionaries who, as soon as they were trained in this country, went to Africa. The other thing that I noticed is that there was a very strong strain of high church that is to say, Episcopal uh, Church in particular, Anglo-Catholic, if you will, tendency in these black nationalists. Uh, for example, Marcus Garvey with his Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which he didn't found, and I, the last time I was in Harlem, it was still there, was actually very high church, uh, African Orthodox, as opposed to being evangelical. Now, you did, but then that term evangelical can be so broadly defined, too. You can almost find some high-church evangelical. But Crummel really did gravitate more towards the more ritualistic, I would say, high-church end of the Anglican faith. 
Now, what was interesting here is that you've got this guy who is very black, very proud of being black and chauvinistic about not having any white blood. On the other hand, you've got Frederick Douglass, who is of mixed ancestry and who's not associated, except with this period when he's ambassador to Haiti, not really associated with any actual nation that is black. But Frederick Douglass has one characteristic of a nationalist, and that is he's very, very tied to the grassroots. So when you read Frederick Douglass's autobiographies, you see that he knows these chants. He knows these little rhythms. You can almost see him singing doo-wop on the street corner. He really understands the masses of the people in the way that Cromwell does not. He's sort of like the Africans that you may meet on any college campus today who are very black and rather, and sometimes I think can be rather contemptuous of the ordinary street-level black culture. So you don't walk up to some Africans, and I've met a lot of Africans, especially Senegalese, you don't walk up and say, hey, my man, what's happening, brother? Because they will get very, very upset with you. They'll become quite indignant. Uh, they'll, they'll answer you in French if you address them in English. I mean, they don't want... I've met those like that. I'm not saying they are all like that by any means. But, there, but Crummel would be, as a person who was second-generation... His father was an African, and he, his father had retained memories of Africa, and Trumbull was not exactly that kind of guy. In fact, he even tells the story about how he was standing on the street corner with some kids and how they were profaning the Lord's Day and idle and wicked jesting, that sort of thing. Whereas I think Douglas really understood was much more a part of the slave culture, what some scholars like to refer to as a black nationalism as well. And so that's another thing about this, about the way that people study black nationalism. Some people are very interested in the slave culture, the culture of the grassroots, in the blues, more recently in rap and hip hop. And they see black nationalism as very much associated with that, whereas other people would rather associate it uh, as my Aunt Mary did, my great Aunt Mary. To her, although she would never have called herself a black nationalist, she was convinced that uh, there was that the hand of God was in the sinking of the Titanic because those white folks thought they were better than us. <laughs> so, so, so Cromwell was like your Aunt Mary. <laughs> he would be more in that Christian puritanical wing, yeah, of black nationalism. And how did his approach to this change when he moved back to the United States? Because so far we've got this picture of someone who's gone off to Africa. He wants to create a kind of religiously founded nation abroad, back in Africa, but then he comes back to the United States, and so he has to, in some sense, play the same kind of game that Frederick Douglass is playing so well? Or how does that change his approach? I don't think so. This is very interesting. You know, there was this talk about founding an American Negro Academy, and I think that the real reason why it wasn't founded until after Frederick Douglass had died was that, in fact, Frederick Douglass was still alive. Uh, the, the creation of an American Negro Academy, which was going to generate within an African-American community, but also in a pan-African sense. An African high culture, a culture uh, very much as, uh, that would be very literary and scientific. Uh, that idea was something that Crummel uh, was very committed to. And this is, of course, where the young W.E.B. Du Bois met him. And Du Bois was very young when he wrote The Conservation of Races. He's sitting in a room full of, of, of these old-fashioned black nationalist Christians, 
and he's and he formulates this idea about the importance of the conservation of the races and goes so far as to attack Locke to attack to attack uh, Adam Smith to attack the entire 18th century Enlightenment tradition as represented in Jefferson. Neither Camelot Du Bois had much appreciation for Jefferson. Not because Jefferson was a slaveholder. It was not anything that naive. That was not the basis. You could, you, as soon as you bring up Jefferson and, and people think you're going to start talking about slavery and Sally Hemings. No, that wasn't it. They had a systematic ideological objection to Jefferson. Jefferson believed in the idea that uh, the governments were created by human beings. And they had this Aristotelian notion that government was fundamentally organic. And they believed in organic state. And Crummel even believed that the idea existed in the mind of God, uh, if it's not the idea of democracy and that, that everything we did would be imperfect because we couldn't cre recreate what was in the mind of God. But Du Bois did not believe in this Jeffersonian concept of the local community or the idea that the state was essentially evil. But what Jefferson didn't like about Plato, whom he detested, and of course Crummel and Du Bois loved Plato, but the problem was that Plato had given this talk, or put it into, into Socrates' mouth, the ideas of the crito, the idea that the individual owed something to the state, even their life. And that was what Jefferson couldn't stand. And that was something that uh, a, guy like, a guy like Du Bois just might be prepared to accept. But I don't want to oversimplify either one of them. The point is they have very different conceptions about the function of the state. And that's what's important to the black nationalists. Whereas I think to the person like Douglas, there is, in fact, a kind of a commitment to the laissez-faire doctrines that are more intrinsically American. Free the slaves and leave them alone, said, said Frederick Douglass. Whereas uh, Cromwell said, now we've got to come up with a new program. Because under slavery, every aspect of the, of the slave's life is controlled in a machine-like way. And we've got to come up with some kind of a system now. One thing you mention in your book on Cromwell is a kind of tension between what you might call a certain cosmopolitanism, which comes out in some of the things you've been saying, right? So these like very high ideals, which might be shared by anybody or at least any Christian, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, the Black Nationalist Project, which by its very nature should be a nation for and by Black people. Do you think that's just an irresolvable conflict at the heart of Cromwell's thought? Or do you think that those two things can somehow be brought together? Well, the, con the conflict, of course, is very present in British nationalism as well. It's the idea that uh, you have a very strong nationalism that goes hand in hand with the civilizing mission of the British Empire you know, in France. The idea that, well, the French resources will speak of French civilization, but they'll also speak of civilization in general. I think the contradiction is in these ideas, and there are a lot of heavy intellectuals have, have talked about this problem of national culture and civilization, and whether there's a conflict of civilizations or a conflict between culture and civilization. But I think what I was trying to do here when I was to was just to simply to point up a kind of a paradox that might not have been uh, very apparent to people who were talking about black nationalism at the time. That is, if a person like Malcolm X is going to, is going to call himself a nationalist, and yet he belongs to this cosmopolitan movement called Islam, there would seem to be a problem here. Or, and one of the things that I noted, not only in Africa, when I was in Cambridge for a couple of years talking to the African students, 
that for African Americans, the touchstone of reality is almost invariably, even among conservatives like Clarence Thomas, <laughs> almost invariably, uh, everyone is drawn back to race. Whereas you might encounter for the African that what's going on here is not so much their race as their religion. When I got there and I saw these guys walking around in some of these beautiful costumes, and of course, you know, um, African Americans were adopting African costume at that time, and but I learned very quickly that these costumes were not to be seen as African, not even necessarily as tribal or as having to do with a specific ethnic group, but the costume the guy was wearing uh, was much more a matter of his religious faith than it was of his Africanness, and we as African Americans, I think, tend to ignore this, except that, of course, we're very much involved in it ourselves. We're very much. And that would be really true of Crummel as well, right? Because his project is always very centrally concerned with creating a Christian nation, right? I mean, for him, Liberia is at least as much Christian as it is think, African, right? I think that at some level, both he and, and Du Bois were aware of this paradox. I'm not aware that either one ever wrote an essay about the paradox, but Crummel and Du Bois were always very concerned with trying to show how this, these, especially the Victorian sexual morality, was something that was present in the traditional African society, and that any deviation from, for example, the feminine instinct of charity, this was a result of the white man's corruption. This was, <laughs> this was not black. That idea was completely rejected during the Harlem Renaissance, when people began to celebrate, but then of course whites were doing it as well, celebrate the deviation from the Victorian sexual morality. And then of course the, the, everything changed. Now, of course, it was, the, it was the blacks who had led the way in getting away from this very inhuman and inhumane Victorian sexual morality. But for Du Bois and Crummel, it was actually the, the higher form of, of sexual morality was this uh, ideal of feminine chastity, which they celebrated and which they believed was our, I think it was Du Bois who said, ancient African chastity. And you would see more in chastity in, on the streets of London than you would in any African village. So that's an example of how the kind of Africanness and the Christianity would come together in Crummel's mind, right? If we can maybe um, step back from Crummel for the last couple of minutes and look at some of his other contemporaries, although we've been talking about them anyway, uh, I'm particularly interested in what you would have to say about Frederick Douglass relative to black nationalism, because he has a lot of disagreements with people like Garnett and Martin Delaney, in fact, Crummel as well. And a lot of these are about a variety of issues, for example, whether violence should be used in the resistance of slavery and so on. But if we just think about his attitudes towards black nationalism, is he an opponent of black nationalism or can he also be construed as a nationalist in some sense? Well, that's why it's good to make a distinction between nationalism and nationalist. Uh, a nationalist can be defined in numerous ways, and so can nationalism. But I would say that some variety of nationalism can, at some point in the biography of just about any black of any prominence, some variety of nationalism can be detected in them at some point in their career. I remember at one point I was at a meeting and there was a woman uh, who represented, it was, was, was sponsored by a conservative group, and this black woman just said, we don't need Afrocentrism because we know that Africans invented algebra. And this, and, this, and this is the kind of thing. And she was a conservative who, was, who, who had been brought there to attack 
Afrocentrism. And I thought that was so, so amusing because here she was uh, spotting an Afrocentric line and not even aware of it. So, uh, so a person like uh, Frederick Douglass does make it his business to visit the pyramids, and he does make it his business to describe his mother as resembling a, a drawing that he had seen of one of the pharaohs in one of the anthropology books that he had encountered. So you might say that uh, not only Afrocentrism, but even a, a variety of Afrocentrism that would be highly approved by some of our contemporary Afrocentrists who put a great deal of emphasis on Egypt, that was certainly present there. But I think that his appreciation for the grassroots culture was is something that I would say is there. Now, as far as emigrationism is concerned, he claims that he was on the verge of investigating the possibility that might exist for a possible, conceivable uh, migration to Haiti at the moment that he heard of the firing on Fort Sumter. How much biographical accuracy we may attribute to that statement, I do not. It sounds a little bit too good to be true, the timing. Anything that's too good to be true probably is. <laughs> so just finally, um, maybe we can look ahead to some of the figures we haven't covered yet in the podcast. And so uh, we can't expect our listeners to know very much about them. But it still might be interesting to think about how someone like Crummel would compare with so-called Pan-Africanists. Uh, yeah. So here I'm thinking of figures like Blyden and especially uh, Garvey. Is he a kind of forerunner of them, or is it a very sharp distinction? Well, he was a friend of Blyden, and they taught together at Liberia College in the um, in the in the in the days when they when they when their careers there overlapped. Uh, he and uh, Blyden agreed on um, on several things, except that Blyden said that as Ishmael came before Jesus, so too Islam may be the agency that prepares people for monotheism and therefore could prepare the way for, for Christianity and, and Crummel didn't accept that idea. But they shared and they were both belonged to the same party while they were there in, uh, in Liberia. That is the party that disassociated itself from the Re Virginia repatriates. It was the party that, also dis that was not associated with the mulatto elite. And so they were felt they were comrades in arms during the period that they were both in Liberia. Afterwards, when the American uh, Negro Academy was being founded, I don't know if Leiden was invited. I can't recall if he was. I know that when Du Bois began his work on the Encyclopedia Africana, he did contact Leiden and exchange correspondence with him uh, at the point when he was when he used the word Afrocentric and said he wanted to create an Afrocentric encyclopedia. And, uh, of course, other people who were associated with Garvey did have uh, some association with Blyden or, and with Blyden's ideas. They were certainly aware of Crummel. Some of them actually had been friends of Crummel. And so there were, there were disciples of Crummel, like William H. Ferris, who became an editor of Marcus Garvey's newspaper. And I think he's Muhammad Newman as well. You're asking me to remember things I wrote 40 years ago. But uh, but I think this Muhammad had a connection. I know he did with the American Negro Academy and uh, Orisha Tukafaduma. These various people who uh, who overlapped with Garvey also overlapped with Crumble. They certainly knew of each other. So we have a really a very strong sense of continuity. Uh, in fact, if we go back to the very first things we talked about, 
in a way this goes all the way back to the 18th century and everyone's connected in this period. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, speaking of connections, I will uh, let the listener know that next time we're going to be moving on to James Africanus Horton. Uh, so that'll be another example of a figure uh, from this period who is interested in African culture and has a lot to say about it. Um, but for now, I will thank Wilson Moses very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for your invitation. Uh, it's been enjoyable. And please join Chike and me as we move on to look at James Africanus Horton next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God 